This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Prime Minister Trudeau's quest for forgiveness. Today is about making some positive steps forward. What his visit to Kamloops means for the community and for truth and reconciliation. Government social workers stopped from seizing a child. Together we are challenging the, the MCFD's authority on these territories. The First Nations blockade and why the ministry felt the child needed protection. And Pfizer asks for emergency authorization of its COVID shot for younger kids. Every parent, we can't wait to get our kids vaccinated. How BC parents feel about vaccinating their children. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. A little more than two weeks after spending Canada's first ever day for truth and reconciliation on a Tofino beach, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau finally visited Kamloops today. Neetu Garcha is live in Kamloops Forest tonight and Neetu, the PM was there to make up for his mistake and part of that is listening to the very heart-wrenching stories from survivors of residential schools today. That's right, Chris. And many of the survivors who were strong enough to share those stories today urged the PM to turn his apologies into action after he dodged questions about how his government will make good on those promises and when. Mr. Trudeau, there's a lot I want to say. As they speak to the Prime Minister on their lands, the pain is palpable from all three generations of this family of survivors. Our children deserve a good future and our families deserve peace. Beyond apologies, Indigenous community members say they want to be heard. Listen and learn from our elders and survivors while they are still here. Ask for their knowledge and advice to move us on, on a path forward. Use your power and privilege for good and make this visit count. It's a visit Cook P. Roseanne Casimir called bittersweet. So in the middle of the truth-telling, cultural grounding and sharing that unfolded as part of the commemoration of the very first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, a journalist quietly informed us that you're on vacation in Tofino. At the live-streamed event, the PM met with the chief, council and community members after he privately paid respects at the burial site where hundreds of unmarked graves were revealed near the former Kamloops Indian Residential School. And heard this honor song from Skelep School students. But despite multiple invites, he came only after backlash over how he spent September 30th. So as a leader in my community, I would love you to apologize to these two ladies. Um, I apologize. I should have been here with you. I am sorry I wasn't. And beyond apologies, Tecumloops to Schwetmig asked the PM to come ready to announce how Ottawa would fund a healing centre in the community and long-term efforts to identify the lost children. And they say he failed to do so. And this is your third election. Actions speak louder than words, so we want to see action. As you, your cabinet comes to be in this next uh, Monday, do something. 
concrete. As Parliament gets set to meet on November 22nd, leaders are asking politicians in Ottawa to hear more survivor stories like these. When I left that school up there, I didn't know how to love myself. Our childhood was filled with violence, addictions and poverty. Wondering where we were getting our next meal and wondering if we could just eat potatoes for another month. Wondering, with, wondering if the butter knife in the door frame is enough to keep us safe from the predators on the other side. Because they say you can't have reconciliation without truth. Now, moments after the PM said goodbye and walked out, I asked all four chiefs who were on stage with him what they thought about today's events, and all agreed they expected more concrete action to be announced for the Indigenous communities that the PM has repeatedly claimed are the government's most important relationship. Back to you. Nitu Garcha in Kamloops for us tonight. Thank you, Nitu. And we understand these stories might be triggering for our viewers, so if you or someone you know needs support, you can call the number on your screen. It's 1-866-925-4419, and that crisis line operates 24 hours a day. Now, a remarkable scene over the weekend in B.C.'s north as members of a First Nation banded together to block government workers. This particular blockade wasn't over logging or pipelines, but over the future of a six-year-old girl. Kamal Karamali reports. And we will do everything in our power to keep her safe. This is an image of defiance, an Indigenous community in northern B.C. standing tall, shoulder to shoulder, against social workers come to take a six-year-old girl back to her foster care home. You know, we were nervous, but also, you know, ready. Colin Sutherland-Wilson is a member of the Gitlusham Hetwit House Group, one of many that make up the Gitsan Nation. In fact, that's him in this picture. He says a young Gitsan girl was visiting her mother's side of the family at the Gittenmax Reserve in Hazleton. The visit lasted only about a week, but when social workers came to pick her up and take her back to her foster family in Ontario, this is what they found. We basically made a stand. We demonstrated that we weren't willing to... Uh, concede to uh, provincial jurisdiction when it came to the child welfare. The Gitsan House Group claims the girl suffered a broken collarbone under the ministry's care. We've been fighting to, to keep her here with family, connected to culture, connected to uh, her ancestry. Canada's foster care system has been compared by Indigenous leaders to a present-day residential school system. It basically is children taking out of their communities, out of their culture, and with no known date of return. Census data shows that although less than 8% of the country's population of children 14 years and younger are Indigenous, they make up more than half of the children in foster care. That's nearly 15,000 Indigenous children in the system. <laughs> and when the Prime Minister was asked about the Hazleton blockade in Kamloops Monday, he came well short of committing to concrete change within the foster care system for Indigenous youth. And we continue to work with the communities at their pace as they develop the system that is right for them. A similar talking point for BC's Minister for Children and Family Development. We will go at their pace. Every nation is at a different um, stage of being able to enter into these discussions. For now, the young girl has been put into the protective custody of the Gitlusham Hetwit, with discussions continuing with ministry staff and the Git and Max band that will determine her future. Kamal Karamali, Global News. All right, now look at the COVID-19 numbers for B.C. Three days worth today. We have 1,846 new cases. 
Active cases have dropped below 5,000. 360 people are in hospital, 151 of those patients in the ICU. Sadly, 26 more people have died from complications of the virus. And 83.4% of eligible British Columbians are now fully immunized. A new survey shows a very slim majority of parents want their kids to be fully vaccinated against COVID-19. But there is a lot of hesitation, too. Krista Dow shows us the challenge ahead for health experts. They are the largest group of Canadians who remain unvaccinated and unprotected. They are children ages 5 to 11 who are still ineligible to get the shot. For some parents, when the time does come, the decision is an easy one. Everyone I know, every parent, we can't wait to get our kids vaccinated. A majority, I think they want, they are waiting to get the vaccine for their children. According to a new Angus Reid poll, it's a choice, though not everyone agrees with. About 51% of parents surveyed say they will get their kids vaccinated. Compare that to about 18% who say they will eventually vaccinate but plan to wait first. And 23% say they won't vaccinate. We have seen in the past parents being, some parents being resistant to vaccinating their children against the flu or against measles or other common childhood illnesses. So it's not as though unwillingness to vaccinate is something new. The results disappointing for BC educators who worry about what it might mean for students. What we're seeing in BC is an increase in the number of children getting sick with COVID-19. We don't want to see schools closed. We've already now seen a couple closures in BC because of outbreaks. Canadians are one step closer to having a safe vaccine for children. On Monday, Pfizer-BioNTech announced it's asked Health Canada for the go-ahead for its child-sized doses of its COVID-19 vaccine. The hope now that parents will take advantage. There is no question that vaccination is the most important layer of protection we have to ensure the safety of everyone in our community. Public health officials are also going to have their work cut out for them, just as they've had to convince grown-ups to get the jab. They're going to have to convince the parents of little people to get the jab as well. Krista Dow, Global News. All right, Keith Baldry joins us now to talk more about where the division lies. Keith, uh, do we expect vaccinations for the 5 to 11-year-old age group to be similar to what we're seeing in the 12 to 17 range? Well, that's the expectation. We don't know, of course. It's interesting. There's about uh, 360,000 kids aged 5 to 11. We have vaccinated 257,000 12 to 17-year-olds, still waiting on 53,000 in that age cohort. But when you break it down by geography, it's very telling. It sort of mirrors what the adults are doing. So if the 5 to 11s are going to look like 12 to 17-year-olds, expect these types of numbers. Vancouver Coastal, very high numbers. 91% first dose, 84% second dose. As of Vancouver Island, very strong numbers. Fraser, a little lower. But this is very telling tells the story. The interior drops even more. And look at the northern numbers. Six, just 61% of 12 to 17-year-olds have one dose and less than 50% have two doses. Again, the north has had, been struggling to get immunized in terms of high numbers. A lot of communities have small uh, vaccination rates. That's reflected in the adult population, but even more so in the younger uh, population. So the expectation is likely 5 to 11-year-olds in terms of vaccination rates probably will have very low numbers in the north and parts of the interior and very high rates of vaccination in Metro Vancouver and the Capital Region. All right, thanks for that, Keith Baldry in Victoria. 
With just three weeks to go until the U.S.-Canada border reopens, getting a PCR test is still one of the biggest hurdles. For instance, will travelers benefit from a taxpayer-funded test? Richard Zussman has the story. Is the service available free to all British Columbians? A COVID-19 PCR test. But starting November 8th, the free test could turn into a ticket to ride. Those hoping to travel back into Canada after a trip to the U.S. will need to have proof of a negative test done within 72 hours of travel. I don't assume that uh, people will behave um, in uh, inappropriate ways, so I don't, I don't think uh, they'll do that. In order to get a test in B.C., you must be experiencing COVID-19 symptoms. But those symptoms are not checked by health authorities or those administering the tests. Those receiving tests will also be denied if they admit to using them for travel. But again, how people use the negative test is not enforced, potentially exposing a heavy burden on an already strained system. We'll take uh, action if required to safeguard uh, access to those services. Obviously, it's very concerning if we hear that people uh, are taking advantage of the system. What I want to do is make sure that people who need their test get it quickly, get the results quickly. Travelers can be tested in Canada before heading south. The Bellingham Chamber of Commerce not encouraging people to break the rules, but they are hoping people consider their options. I could foresee a scenario using that example of that negative COVID test. You have Canadian customers coming down to Bellingham and they'll take advantage of, oh, I had to get a negative test for this procedure or whatever reason oh, hey, it's still valid for another day. Let's go down to Bellingham today and go shopping. The province could just let someone know they are negative rather than provide the full result as they currently do. To get a private test, it's around $200 in British Columbia. The federal government, the ones requiring people to produce that negative test at the border, a requirement Premier John Horgan says should be waived. What's the point of having a test in Vancouver going to Seattle and then saying, well, I've, I've been tested in the past 36 hours and then coming right back again. Why don't I just get a test when I come home if I need one? But it, it seemed to me to be an example of stupidity. Horgan says next time he talks to the prime minister, he'll make it clear he thinks the testing requirement should be scrapped at the border. Richard Osman, Global News, Victoria. Well, there's new information showing Canadians are paying more to fly as air travel recovers from the pandemic. The aviation data supplier Sirium says between July of 2019 and July of 2021, the average price of a round-trip ticket within Canada went up almost $100 to $532 plus taxes. Sirium says part of the reason for the higher prices is that Canadian airlines switched to smaller planes when the start of, uh, start of the pandemic devastated their businesses. There's pent-up demand. There's, there's disposable income available, so people have money to spend because they haven't spent it in the first half of the year and they want to see their families, relatives, or go on vacation. So when you combine that with average plane size being smaller, um, it results in higher fares as people kind of fight for those limited number of seats. Sirium says it is possible fares will keep rising until airlines switch back to larger planes, increasing the number of available seats. The province has been quick to tell people stay home if you're sick during the pandemic. The government is exploring the possibility of bringing in an employer-paid sick leave program to help. But as Catherine Urquhart shows us, 
Many small and independent businesses say they simply can't afford it. COVID-19 has proven how critical it is that employees don't go to work when sick. A provincial consultation on employer-paid permanent sick days is now underway. We know that we're going to need sick days uh, for workers. The pandemic has taught us that, that we need to ensure that people have the security to be able to uh, stay home when they're sick because it helps the business as well. The Canadian Federation of Independent Business is pushing back. We just surveyed our members on, on permanent paid sick days, um, and, and our members have... have so the results really just show that our members have a lot of concern uh, with, with this permanent paid sick leave program. The CFIB says their survey found 64% of businesses do not support an employer paid sick leave program, with 84% citing costs as the main concern. However, 63% support it if fully funded by government. Only 46% of BC uh, small businesses are back to making normal revenues. They have record numbers of debt. We're talking upwards of $129,000. And, you know, recovery's not quite there. There's a lot of uncertainty. BC is proposing three options for permanent paid sick leave. Three days, five days, or a 10-day option. It is a cost right now. And uh, there may be a cost going forward, but I think, you know, it is, the, it is something that we have to do uh, in order to continue on to have a safe workplaces and the workplaces will continue to be operational. And as a society, we will be healthier. BC's permanent paid sick leave program will come into effect January 1st. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. The city of Vancouver is setting a deadline for municipal employees to get their COVID-19 vaccine. The new policy applies to 8,000 people who keep the city running, such as crews who respond to unclogged drains during heavy rain. They will have to be fully vaccinated by December 6th. If not, they won't be allowed to work unless they qualify for a medical or other exemption under the Human Rights Code. The policy, however, does not apply to Vancouver City councillors. And the Surrey Police Service is among the first departments in the province to announce its staff will have to be fully vaccinated. All Surrey Police Service officers are to be immunized against COVID-19 by November 30th. New recruits will also have to abide by the rule. The board says officers need to take a leadership role in protecting the community. Well, today is the first day of Variety Week, a week where we share some of the successes and challenges of children with special needs across our province and the ways that Variety is really making a difference in their lives. And you can help make a difference by supporting Variety now. And when you call during tonight's news hour, your donations will be matched up to a total of $25,000 by Nancy Burke and Ian Telfer. Thank you very much for that. Plus, your name will be added to the list of names you see scrolling along the bottom of your screen right now. So please call 310-KIDS and double the impact of your donations now. Thanks to everybody who calls in and donates. All right, until then, a massive infrastructure project goes down the toilet. How a Metro Vancouver wastewater plant got years behind schedule And what happens now that the construction company appears to have walked away? That's next on the NewsHour. Stepping onto the ice and into the history books, the first all-female officiating crew on what it means to be trailblazers later in sports. And a Toronto barber creating a buzz why his clients, famous and otherwise, keep coming back later. 
Right now, though, a national taxpayer group is raising the alarm over the construction of a massive water treatment plant on the North Shore. The project is late and over budget, with the contractor and region blaming each other. And as Ted Chernecki reports, we may never know why the project is circling the drain. When the contract was awarded in 2017, there was much fanfare about the state-of-the-art wastewater treatment plant that would be built on Vancouver's North Shore. Initially a $750 million deal, but now just over a billion. This state-of-the-art facility will combine the latest wastewater treatment technologies. Then this past Friday, the dreaded 5 o'clock news release, where bad news is quietly announced before the weekend to minimize media coverage. Metro was cancelling its contract, saying the project is two and a half years behind schedule and costs are climbing. Who's responsible for the added cost to the taxpayer? Well, that's unclear. There is really no firm and clear mechanism to investigate things like this. In a statement, Axiona Canada claims it's owed $100 million for work completed, but it continues limited construction for now. It says Metro has requested more than a thousand major design changes to the original contract. This is the second time a very big Metro project has ground to a halt. Bilfinger Berger Canada stopped work on boring twin tunnels under Grouse Mountain in 2008, citing instability issues. Metro had to rehire, while expensive lawsuits went to court. The project doubled in cost from $400 to $850 million. We need a permanent, robust, sharp-toothed watchdog in British Columbia whose sole job it is to oversee city halls. We had a watchdog. The Liberals in 2013 brought in the local auditor's office. But six years later, the NDP started winding it down for full cancellation this year. We understood from local governments and from the Union of BC Municipalities that this was a, a costly program and it took a tremendous amount of staff time and efforts. It was not supported by local governments. Well, if the UBCM didn't like it, that's a perfect reason to keep it. There's way too much of this project already built, so it will get finished. But at what cost, physically and now legally? Metro Vancouver did not respond to repeated requests for comment. Ted Chernecki, Global News. Up next, the crunch for consumer goods. We're lucky to have anything in inventory right now. Why supply chain problems could soon be much more than an inconvenience, yeah. no matter what you're buying. And the BC Kindergarten program so successful, it's expanding what students and parents are getting outside normal school hours. Dealing with a stall here in Richmond, eastbound on the east-west connector near Nelson. It is off to the shoulder, but still causing a backup through this stretch. Need winter tires? No time for appointments. Drop by Mr. Lube and enjoy stay-in-your-car tire service on your schedule. No appointment needed. Mr. Lube, ready when you are. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high of the east-west connector in Richmond. Fridges, dishwashers, washers and dryers, home appliances of almost any kind are being dramatically impacted by the pandemic and the worsening supply chain crisis. It's a situation creating plenty of frustration for consumers and hardship for many retailers. With more, let's bring in Consumer Matters reporter Anne Drua on when we might see some relief. Anne? Thanks, Sophie. We've heard from numerous consumers who've been waiting months, and in some cases over a year, for certain appliances to arrive. Once again, it's all about patience and planning when navigating through these challenging times. Instead of the two dryers that I have as an option, I would have had 14 of them lined up here beside. 
washers. I have two options here. I would have had 14 of them lined up side by side. In his 15 years as owner of Vancouver's appliance outlet, Lazar Elich says, like so many retailers, he's been hit hard by the supply chain crisis. His showroom has never looked quite like this. Lower than normal inventory with fewer types of appliances to choose from. Well, the supply issue has been an issue for the last year and we're lucky to have anything in inventory right now. From semiconductor chip shortages, labor shortages, pandemic-related factory shutdowns and container ship backlogs, the home appliance industry, like so many other industries, has fallen victim to the global supply chain crisis. Some customers now waiting up to 13 months for delivery. I wish I had something really positive to say, but it's kind of hope for the best. Um, as much as possible, anybody contemplating a renovation right now or even a custom home construction or something of that nature, the key issue here is plan ahead and order ahead. Or be flexible. Maria Criticos was in the market for a washer and dryer. She decided to compromise after what she originally wanted wasn't in stock. Well, you have to be flexible. Yeah, you can't be picky right now if you want things now. And for certain appliances, expect to pay more. 89? Yes. So that used to be a lot cheaper before the supply chain crisis. I would say six months ago, we were selling this refrigerator for six ninety nine. And what's driving that price increase? It would definitely be the containers. The situation is just as bleak for appliance-related parts. A part that used to only take me two or three days to get on my hand is now taking three to four months. So when can consumers and retailers expect some relief? It is getting better, it is normalizing, but it's taking a lot of time to normalize. So my expectation is that at least for the next six to nine months, we're going to be experiencing some of these problems. Lazar just hopes customers can adapt and be open to options. Yeah, it might have a small scratch or dent on it, yeah. Okay. It's completely completely out of the controls of, of the retailers, um, especially the, the family-owned businesses. And we also reached out to the Association of Home Appliance Manufacturers. It told us in a statement the home appliance industry is urging action from policymakers to alleviate the damage to the supply chain while working around the clock to deliver appliances that are essential to our daily life. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can email me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. All right. Thanks, Anne. Good news for parents with young children. The province is expanding its Seamless Day Kindergarten pilot program. As Grace Key reports, it gives parents the option of dropping off their child at kindergarten earlier and picking them up later. I am kind when I help my family. Families at Nicomechel Elementary in Langley will have another childcare option when juggling work, education, or other obligations. The province has announced the Seamless Day Kindergarten Pilot Program is being expanded from 4 to 25 schools. This program encourages lifelong learning, and families can be confident that their children are safe, learning, and playing in a familiar location all day long. The pilot program is a $1.2 million investment. It provides before and after school care right in the child's kindergarten classrooms so kids start and end their day in the same space. Certified early childhood educators work with children and support learning alongside the classroom teacher. We know this program will make things easier for so many of our families, lightening their load, relieving some of the day-to-day -day stress and supporting their children at a time when they need it most. 
The Langley School District is working on plans to roll the program in the new year. The 21 school districts are also finalizing details on the specific schools that will host the programs. That information is expected to be released in the coming weeks. Grace Key, Global News. We do it for the kids. I'm seeing a lot of donations at the bottom in that crawl, too, on the screen there. So thanks to everybody who's called in. Still ahead, how Variety steps in to help. I've been encouraged now. I don't feel so alone anymore. A young girl finally getting the support she needs thanks to your donations. But first, wrapping up the Cullen Commission into money laundering. What final submissions reveal? This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Good evening and good news from Delta. Final clearing stages of a crash here eastbound on 64th Avenue at Scott Road in the center lane. Through a new charitable partnership between Kermat Cares for Kids and Surrey Memorial Hospital, when you choose Kermat Collision and Autoglass, you also support the Surrey Memorial Children's Health Center. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above a crash in Delta. Well, the Cullen Commission on Money Laundering in B.C. and B.C.'s casinos heard final submissions today from the whistleblowers, the people who came forward with their concerns. And as John Wall reports, they question whether the commission put the interests of some of its participants ahead of the public. They risked their careers and more to speak out about suspicious cash entering B.C. casinos. Mr. McGowan, I'm under oath. I'm telling the truth. Now key whistleblowers are voicing their belief the deck was stacked against them. I've done my best to tell the truth. During the public inquiry, they pushed for in hopes of uncovering the truth. The integrity of the commission itself is to some degree um, at stake, I, I would say, by how whistleblowers are treated. In final submissions for former BC Lottery Corporation anti-money laundering director Ross Alderson and former RCMP illegal gaming unit commander Fred Penick. Their lawyer told the Cullen Commission the playing field was slanted towards those protecting their own interests over the public good. Uh, my clients haven't had the benefit of participating to cross-examine anybody. Both of them were cross-examined at length by a number of participants. Jaffe argued it was Commission counsel's job to lead these witnesses to reveal crucial evidence, but instead took shots at their characters and credibility. Rather than... Uh, one of gratitude and accommodation and adducing relevant evidence. There was an t attack by commission counsel. In contrast, Jaffe criticized commission counsel's handling of conflicting evidence from witnesses like former provincial ministers Rich Coleman and Cash Heed. He's given the opportunity for damage control. He's fed these very open, soft questions. He's not challenged. The issue of better whistleblower protection also raised by the union representing government and casino employees. The absence of evidence from the perspective of frontline casino workers is a gap in the commission's evidentiary foundation. The BC General Employees Union said when it asked members to speak out about what they saw on the casino floor, none felt it was safe enough to do so.
our members perceived a threat to their livelihoods and were not willing to take the risk to testify publicly. The Cullen Commission is not providing a closing submission, which means it must address these concerns in its final report expected in December. At stake, any future whistleblower watching these proceedings, wondering if the payout is really worth the wager. John Hua, Global News. Well, in health matters tonight, living in B.C., you never think a child would have to wait years for a critical medical diagnosis, but that is exactly what's happening for children with autism. And many of these kids have to wait years for a public assessment, which means treatments and funding options are all delayed. Variety has launched a new initiative now to fund private autism assessments designed to help children like Taylor. I, I almost felt like my life was over because I felt I am saddled with something that is much bigger to me, and I don't know if I'm going to make it through. Taylor's grandmother is desperately searching for answers to help figure out exactly what's going on with her granddaughter. Some of her behaviors um, just didn't seem normal, and I tried all these different things and nothing worked. Regular counseling sessions and medication for her ADHD have helped, but many indicators are pointing towards autism spectrum disorder. So we recognize that autism is not one thing. People can present very widely on the spectrum with a multifaceted needs. But it does impact people's social skills, their communication skills, and it can impact their interests and their behavior. An autism designation provides children with much-needed funding from the government and access to additional educational resources. Right now, public assessments have three-year wait lists and private assessments can cost more than $3,000. To help, Variety has started funding private autism assessments so kids don't have to wait, and practitioners can develop effective treatment strategies much more quickly. We also know that young brains are very malleable, which means practicing new ideas, new strategies, um, practicing new behaviors can actually result in changes in the brain and it can affect the course of your life. So earlier is always better. Taylor is getting the assessment she deserves so she has a better chance to thrive and succeed. Variety wants to ensure every child has that same opportunity by supporting families and funding these timely autism tests. I don't feel so alone anymore and I feel like Taylor's getting help and I think she's gonna be okay, you know, going forward with her future. And with your donations, kids will not have to wait three years for an autism designation, and they can get the treatments they need much sooner. So please call now. 310-KIDS is the number, or go online to variety.bc.ca. And remember, Nancy Burke and Ian Telfer are matching your donations tonight throughout the news hour. Floyd Verg, Radium Hot Springs, 169 bucks. Thank you for calling in. We really appreciate it. And everybody else whose name you'll see in that crawl. Still ahead, a barber who makes all of his clients feel like stars. I tell a lot of my clients all the time that I appreciate them probably more than they appreciate me. He's talented with clippers, but his greatest skill might just be listening. And in sports, what Brock Besser says and doesn't say about the injury that's kept him out of the lineup. Well, we're still drying out from the weekend, but uh, today was a decent start to the week, Christy. 
Mm-hmm. Great start to the week. It was only, if only we could have had that over the weekend. We had three days of relentless rain, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Here's a look at some of the totals. It was literally like a funnel or a uh, fire hose just targeting from Tofino right up towards Squamish. That was where the majority of that moisture was. Uh, Vancouver getting 122 millimeters. And then on either side of that, far less. So if you're out in the, through the Fraser Valley, you may have been wondering what happened. Now, that brought down a lot of the leaves. So if you can take some time to clear some storm drains in your neighborhood. It might not be a bad idea to do that tomorrow because we're expecting sunshine once again before, yes, it is fall after all. By Wednesday morning, we're back into periods of rain and windy conditions once again. So here's a look at your tomorrow. Enjoy it. We'll see above seasonal temperatures in a lot of regions. We may see some patchy fog through the morning hours, but otherwise you can expect sunshine and a high of 14 degrees in Metro Vancouver. That is above seasonal for this time of year and uh, certainly enjoyable. But as I mentioned, by Wednesday morning, we're right back into it. So you'll need to give yourself extra time for your commute to work Wednesday morning. Tonight, Central Windows weather window is a glorious one. I love this shot from Tom Henry. This is a shot from Burnaby Mountain. You can see the puddles, the leaves. This says fall and uh, atmospheric river, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> Yikes. Beautiful picture, though, for sure. All right. Thanks, Christy. All right. You see Squire there uh, with sports and a little sports history made. Last night in the BCHL. Yes, you are correct. An all-women's officiating crew. Just in there to do our job, regardless of regardless of who's kind of under the helmet and under the jersey. And we will talk with all four about their first game working together. And later, a Toronto barber who's a cut above the competition. Big question for Canucks Nation. When will Besser be back? Here's Squire. Could be tomorrow. Could be. The uh, Canucks actually stayed in Detroit after Saturday's loss to the Red Wings. They had yesterday off. They practiced this morning before they head to Buffalo for a game tomorrow. Quinn Hughes had the day off just to rest, and he could use the rest. He's been playing an average of 27 minutes and 39 seconds per game, which is fourth most per game in the NHL right now. Out at practice, so on the first line was Brock Besser, who has not played a regular season game yet. They hope he can play tomorrow. He might be able to play. He really hasn't played since the first game of the exhibition season against the Kraken. He's been out with an injury that still really hasn't been revealed. You know, something after um, playing that Seattle game, and, um, you know, camp can be a little grueling sometimes. So, um, felt a little something and then uh, obviously you know practice and uh something happened in practice where you know it just didn't feel right so that's when you kind of got to take a step back and, and reevaluate canucks have also said that defenseman travis hamannick is on a temporary leave of absence to deal with personal matters which means none of his salary will count against the canucks right now now before vancouver announced this travis green had this to say about hamannick we miss Hammer. We want him to be back playing, but we also uh, want to make sure he's okay and whatever what he's dealing with and whatever he's dealing with. And, and uh, other than that, there's not much I can say. San Jose forward and Vancouver-born uh, Vander Kane has been suspended 21 games without pay for violating the NHL's COVID protocol. We don't know exactly what that means, but it was reported a week ago that he was being investigated by the league for allegedly using a fake 
vaccination card. He was also being investigated for domestic assault, but the NHL says that allegation could not be substantiated. Kane will not be able to play again until November 30th. And this morning, the Seattle Seahawks said they have talked with free agent quarterback Cam Newton after watching Geno Smith fumble away last night's game against Pittsburgh. But as of right now, they have not made a contract offer to Cam Newton, who was cut by the Patriots this year, and there may not be a contract offer either. The BC Hockey League has 120 on-ice officials, make that, five of which are women. And for the first time ever, four of those five worked the game together, an all-women officiating crew for a game last night between Surrey and Langley. It was a thumbs-up moment and then some. Megan Howes, Grace Barlow, Melissa Bruin, and Colleen Geddes collectively making hockey history. The four BC Hockey League officials becoming the first all-female officiating crew to work a game at the Canadian Junior A level. Whenever I step onto the ice, my, my thought to myself is it's, it's just another hockey game. It's just another hockey game. And got to go out there and do my best and, and make sure that the game is safe and fair. And that's all that matters. Whether there's women on the ice, men on the ice, whatever player is on the ice, what level it is, what age that it is, it needs to be fair and it needs to be safe and that's my job. Um, and it's just another hockey game. And that's what I tell myself every time I step on the ice. It's a sentiment shared by every on-ice official, regardless of their gender. These four women have climbed through the amateur hockey ranks, earning their way to officiate a game at the junior A level. And just like the players they're watching over, every shift for these officials is a learning experience. For those sporting the stripes, that means game management. Um, just building the relationships. So the rapport, because players respond way better to one-on-ones rather than, you know, who likes to be yelled at in front of their peers. Nobody. Um, and that's game management in the sense that it's on the down low. We don't have to do the big arms in the air penalties. A lot of our work is actually in those one-on-one conversations um, to make the big blow-ups easier. I try and have a calm demeanor myself. I don't try and get riled up in the game. I was a player too. I understand how they felt. Um, I coached uh, in the female major midget league as well. So I can kind of understand and have empathy from all of the angles that, of the game. Over the course of those first few games, definitely I've just like Learn to be fearless. Uh, I think maybe they're a little bit surprised, but they know that we're just in there to do our job regardless of regardless of who's kind of under the helmet and under the jersey. And this is my first year in the BCHL, so um, just being able to be in this league is very, I'm proud of myself for that. And then being out here with these other women is also just great to be here. Any official will tell you they've done a good job if you didn't notice them during the game, but it was impossible not to notice the first all-female crew to officiate a junior A game. What it means to hockey and to future officials wanting to follow in their footsteps. I believe that it's a kind of a milestone for the fact that these women have worked so hard to get to this point, right, and have earned this opportunity. That's the best part about officiating is they went out there, they, they did their job, I thought they did a great job, and, and no one's gonna sit there and talk about, well, there was four females on the ice, it was just officiated by four people. And Brad would know because he had a long career in the NHL. He was proud of those women last night. Well, maybe it's the NHL next for them. Let's hope so. Up next, a hairstylist to a pair of hockey star brothers. We'll meet the Toronto barber who's a cut above the rest just ahead.
Well, the relationship between a hairdresser or barber and their client can sometimes feel a little more like therapy. And one Toronto area barber whose clientele includes a number of top athletes goes a step further. He's a mentor to many of his young clients and encourages unity through the simple art of conversation. Global's Kayla McLean has more. You know, I mean, you've already done the right thing, man. I mean, For Patrice Alexander, cutting hair comes as yeah. easy and naturally to him as breathing. I've been a barber now for about 30 years. I know it sounds, it sounds pretty crazy saying that. Something else that comes naturally to him. But I mean, you already made the right step. You know, you, know, you put your best foot forward already. Yeah. Is talking. Stuff now. Okay. And listening. To be honest, it's just a lot to take in. Yeah, I'm sure. Something his clients say he does extremely well. As I come here for a therapeutic haircut, it's just a moment for me to decompress, to self-care. Patrice makes me look the best. For hockey star Jordan Subban, brother PK, and their entire family, it's more than Patrice's magic touch that's kept them coming back for the past 10 years. It's just an environment that he creates that's uh, inclusive uh, for everybody to, to, to be a part of that conversation in a way and not, you know, feel dumb. You know, it's cool to ask questions. It's about growth. Clients say that inclusivity can be rare in these spaces. So rare that some do a double take when they see Patrice's barbershop in the middle of Koreatown North. Clients start coming in, you know, wow, this guy knows how to cut straight hair. And that's always been the stereotype. You know, the black barbers aren't really familiar with straight hair. But those are stereotypes Patrice wanted to challenge here at the Forum Barber Parlor, a place he ensures lives up to its name, where everything can be discussed. Here you are, a black-owned barbershop. Like, yeah. How is that? Like, in a respectful way. I tell a lot of my clients all the time that I appreciate them probably more than they appreciate me because every single person is in my chair, I'm learning from them. And they that. are learning from him. Alexander isn't just a barber, but a TV personality and an entrepreneur, launching a new product line this year. To say that he mentors, it's, it's yes, I can come and I can talk to him, but I'm also seeing what he's doing and that pushes me to do more. Subban says it's Patrice um, creating a space for young men to be vulnerable. That is the difference maker for him. It opens your eyes to show you, you know, that, that there are people that care about what you have to say and what you're going through. That's still together. For Patrice's yeah. clients, that makes their barber a cut above the rest. Kayla McLean, Global News. Sure beats the old pandemic haircut that you do yourself. I got to tell you. <laughs> Glad we're past those days now. Yeah. All right, before we go, let's take a look at our kid count board for our first update and see how many children will be able to receive support from Variety because of your donations. And after day one, we've raised enough money for Variety to help 106 children. Thank you for calling and donating. And thank you very much to Nancy Burke and Ian Telfer for matching donations tonight. There's still a lot of time to call. We'll be taking donations all week. And again, the number is 310KIDS. Thank you so much, everyone. All right, we'll give Christy the last word for weather. Christy? Sure, I hope you can enjoy tomorrow. Lots of sunshine and warmth on the way, which will be phenomenal compared to the weekend that we had. Uh, but we're right back into periods of rain on Wednesday. So, yes, enjoy tomorrow, everyone. Can't wait for that. Thank you, Christy, and thanks for watching, everyone. Have a good night. Good night, all.